This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a Memorial Day special. You'll hear the story of a massive World War II battle that's been largely overlooked. Also, the damp, sometimes isolating life of a submariner. But first, when veterans die, they're entitled to a flag presentation and other military honors. But one veteran here, Luis Oliveira, was shocked and angry to learn that at the funeral of a friend's father, a World War II veteran, no one recognized his service. So, Oliveira began bringing this sound to burials at Fort Logan Cemetery in Denver. Oliveira founded the Honor Bell Foundation. We spoke about its mission in May of 2017. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. This is an honor to be here. Tell me more about what motivated you to build the Honor Bell. Sure. So about seven years ago, I attended a funeral of a World War II veteran, my best friend's father. And uh, they had requested military honors, in his case, from the Army. And we waited 30 minutes. We waited 45 minutes. Finally, after about an hour, the clergy came up and said, listen, we, we have to move on. We have to get this show on the road. And so this veteran, part of our greatest generation, was buried with no military honors whatsoever. And it just angered me. So I did some research and I found out that there are nearly a thousand veterans that are passing away every day in this country. Just here in Colorado, we have about 50 passing away each day. And uh, I was really kind of shocked about that. And so I thought there must be something I can do to make a difference. And so we started the Honor Bell. Have you heard anecdotally or officially that other service members who died also haven't gotten the military honors they deserve? There has been nationally a drastic uh, decrease in the availability for military honors. And uh, Department of Defense is required uh, by congressional mandate to perform these honors at veterans' funerals. But uh, at the same time, there's been a decrease in funding for this mission. In some places, it's that volunteers have stepped up to do this work. And uh, you might, instead of getting a live bugler, for instance, have a recording played of taps at a funeral. Uh, The Air Force said a few years ago it had to cut back on the extent of its funeral honors because of some mandatory budget cuts. Nevada, Minnesota had to reduce funding for National Guard funerals. I will say that at Fort Logan, where the honor bell tolls most often, a spokesman tells us that every request for military honors at a funeral uh, is fulfilled. Fort Logan is really just an incredible place. And they it is true. They provide honors to every single veteran that is interred there. I want to talk more about the bell itself. So particularly how it was made. It's a thousand pounds. It rolls out of the back of a van, which I understand is in our parking lot as it we is, speak. It is, it uh, is. To be told at the cemetery, mostly bronze. But you have medals and other artifacts from veterans melted into it. That includes apparently dog tags and a belt buckle from Robert Raymond Abbott Jr.'s Coast Guard uniform. He held the highest enlisted rank serving on active duty in the 1960s. His widow, Nancy Abbott, lives in Centennial. She donated these artifacts and said she had an emotional reaction when she first heard the bell toll. Yeah, it just brought chills to me, goosebumps on my arms, and just tears to my eyes because I was so proud of what the Honor Bell Foundation had done and then was really proud 
of my husband and knowing that he would have been filled with so much pride to know that it was forged for all the veterans who had served their country in any capacity. What are some of the other artifacts, perhaps from different eras, that ended up in this bell, ones that stand out to you? Sure. So as we were pouring the 2,000-degree molten bronze into the mold, we dropped in a Purple Heart medal from a World War II veteran. We dropped in a Medal of Honor challenge coin from a Korean War veteran, Joe Sakato, here from Colorado. We dropped in, as you said, a, uh, a set of dog tags from uh, a Vietnam veteran in this case. In all, we dropped in 12 military-related medal pieces, artifacts, badges, buttons, uniform items that families donated to us. And we say that the bell is forged from honor. Uh, and as those melted down and became part of the bell, it's an interesting story. Uh, the bell manufacturer, we had it done at Verdon Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, the oldest bell manufacturer in the U.S. Huh. Actually been making bells since 1842. Seven generations of Verdons have been pouring bells, and our bell was poured by Tim Verdon, uh, the great-great-grandson of the founder of the company. And uh, as he finished uh, buffing the bell and getting it all shined up, he came to me and he said, I'm you know, really sorry, but we've never had this happen before. This is the first time we've made a bell with something other than 100% bronze. Oh. And as it cooled, you can see here, he was pointing to the bell, that there are these imperfections, these pockmarks in the bell. And I said, well, what caused those? He said, those are these non-bronze material that, that when it cooled came out to the top of the bell. He said, we can cover those up. You know, we have some putty and you'll never know. I said, don't you dare. That's the whole purpose of the bell. That's its character. That's right. Does it affect the sound of the bell? Not whatsoever. Uh, I understand that it was paid for through private donations and your largest donor is the Daniels Fund here in Denver. Was there any concern about... Uh, melting like metals into the bell that that was some kind of dishonor to the metals themselves like I, I don't know I don't know if there's even sure no uh, whole... in fact the opposite of that okay uh, as you heard from Nancy uh, just a real incredible honor for these families to donate these artifacts and for them to be included so every time the bell is told some 400 times now uh, a piece of Colorado's history is sounded throughout Fort Logan. What do you sound the bell with? So the bell is a stationary bell. It's not a swinging bell that you mm. might think of. And so there's a clapper. It's actually a 65-pound ball underneath it on a arm. And we pull a lanyard, and it strikes the bell and makes the beautiful sound that you hear. Uh, and it lasted, I think, like 20-some-odd seconds if you strike it just once. I mean, it really has some resonance. Yes, it does. Now, we strike the bell. We have a. We call this rendering bell honors and we do this again at the request of a family for a veteran who has passed and we toll the bell seven times with seven seconds between each toll you toll a bell for sorrow you ring a bell for joy we can think of wedding bells they're very high tuned bells this bell is tuned to the musical note of a uh, one of the lowest notes a bell can make a musical note of a is the sound of mourning and so it's a very almost a haunting sound when you hear it it's the deliberate ringing of a bell in a slow manner uh, to evoke that resonance that you're talking about. And is there symbolism behind seven? Yes. So seven is the number of completion. Uh, it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to many reasons. But seven, in our case, uh, signifies the veteran's life coming to a completion. Hmm. Louis, I'd like you to tell me about uh, a recent experience you had at the funeral of a World War II veteran uh, who was 98 years old. 
he was the last of his family. All of his family members, his wife, his brothers, his siblings had preceded him in death. So literally there was no uh, next of kin. And all there was at the funeral was his uh, caregiver. He had, had, you know, 98 years old. I think he had died of cancer. And out at Fort Logan, there was this call put out to all veterans. And there were nearly 300 individuals at this person's funeral, all veterans. We had uh, the armed services in uniform. We had the Patriot Guard riders, the All Veterans Honor Guard. We had the Honor Bell. We had just veterans who heard about it and came out. And it's sort of a network of veterans that uh, get these notifications and come out and and show their respect. None who knew him personally, but but felt the connection that veterans feel uh, with one another. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. The camaraderie. Is this a bell you want told at your own uh, funeral? Well, I hope so. I will be buried at Fort Logan, and I hope that the sound of the bell is the last thing that's heard at my funeral. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And indeed, the honor bell did toll for Louis Oliveira. We learned he passed away last July and was laid to rest at Fort Logan. He was a U.S. Army Ranger and had received two Purple Hearts for a combat mission in Panama. Oliveira created the Honor Bell Foundation and spoke with us in May of 2017. Its work continues to ensure veterans have a proper final tribute. This is CPR News. Most Allied soldiers knew World War II was coming to an end by July 26, 1945. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. But the message didn't reach Roy Christensen until later. He was aboard the USS Raton, a Navy submarine stationed in the Pacific, I met the now 94-year-old veteran at his apartment in Centennial last September. He sat in his leather chair and took me back to the 1940s, explaining why he and his shipmates were among the last to know the war had ended. We were uh, on patrol in the Philippine Sea off the Philippines, and uh, we were still hunting enemy ships. But when uh, the flimsy came into our, our boat, uh, now, what's a flimsy? Well, a flimsy is a, a, uh, when we surfaced any messages that were to go to the to the ship, they would come through in, a, in code in about one sentence, and then you had to decode it. And these would only come if you were at the surface of the water. Right. Yeah. So we really didn't. We were on our way into Subic Bay for a refitting. I imagine it was about two or three days. We had an idea something was going on, but. We really didn't know anything to celebrate that the the Japanese had surrendered. My goodness, you didn't get the message until you had come ashore. Uh, and there you were patrolling the seas for days after the war had ended. What, what, what if you had found a ship? I can't answer that. I really don't know. That was, uh, uh, luckily it didn't happen. But uh, in August, uh, we had sunk three ships. Tell me about one of those occasions. What was it like? You had a submarine with torpedoes, correct? Yes. One incident that had happened, we were, we'd received a flimsy to 
uh, search out a Japanese submarine because it had a German scientist and an assistant on board, and that was the number one priority, find that submarine and sink it. And the USS Lapan was in that same territory, thought that we were the Japanese submarine, and fired two torpedoes at us. And luckily the torpedoes hit us and glanced off, and one of them went out a couple hundred yards and then exploded. I believe this was the only occasion of friendly fire of one American sub to another one. That's correct, and that still stands. And luckily, at that time, we had some angels riding with us because uh, those torpedoes didn't explode. But uh, we were all sworn to secrecy at that time. And uh, when we got back into port, we were told that we either hit an old mine or we hit a, a palm tree that was floating around in the, in the Pacific. And <laughs> I always kind of laughed about that. I never heard of a palm tree exploding. <laughs> Essentially to save face for the United States Navy, I suppose. That's exactly correct. There was uh, a lot of covering uh, people's... Heinies. Uh, 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 yeah, I, <laughs> right. I didn't want to say that, but that's about what it was. Did you ever find that ship with the German scientist aboard? No, we didn't. You got to remember that in World War II, uh, all the kids that volunteered to get into the Navy, about 50% of them were doing it because they were, they were beating the draft. We were all kids, and we were all looking for excitement and thrills, and, and I'll certainly tell you that's where we got them. <laughs> feel like my only experience with a submarine is through movies and I think I went on the submarine ride at Disneyland as a kid I'd like a real account of what it was like to be in a sub how how far deep would you be well to begin with in the submarine service uh, you had to be a volunteer to even get into it there was a lot of screening before you were accepted for schooling to be in the submarine service. And everybody said, well, how does it feel when you submerge? Uh, it just feels like an airplane. When you click your ears to get your, uh, your jaw straightened out, so to speak, it's the same way when you dive. It's no different uh, undersea than it is on top, except for I better not have claustrophobia in, in a submarine. The boat that I was on was 211 feet long, and carried 65 crew. When you submerged in those old diesel electric boats, about 20 to 24 hours was your extreme limit of staying submerged. When you dove into the colder water, it made condensation on the ceiling or the overhead of the submarine, and uh, uh, you kind of had a damp feeling. Your your clothes were damp all the time. Were you ever afraid? Oh, sure. Uh, Anybody that said they were in a submarine service and they weren't scared, uh, uh, they're lying to you. Because when somebody had you spotted and they started dropping depth charges, the first thing we would do is start counting. And we'd slowly count to 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And if you got past 10, 
you probably got a good rocking around, but you survived. But if you didn't get to 10, there's, well, we don't have to go into that. We lost 57 submarines during uh, World War II. When you have a war, whether you might call it propaganda or not, but the first thing that is taught to any service people is to kill and hate that enemy. So I don't think any of us had, had a feeling of what we had done causing loss of life. Don't think that ever entered our minds at all. We looked at it that, well, there's one ship that's down and it's a victory for our side of the, of the coin. Now, one time we sunk a Japanese freighter that at the same time had been converted somewhat to a troop carrier. Boy, when that ship was sinking, uh, our captain let us all take a look through the periscope and we saw hundreds of sailors in the water. And they were so anxious to kill us that the two escorts they had, destroyer escorts, they were dropping depth charges on us. And the concussion of those depth charges going off in the water would just lift these guys in the water up about a foot or two out of the water, not completely out of the water, but it would make them jump up, you know, like the explosion. They were killing their own people. Did you miss the Raton after you left it for the last time? Certainly did. I had came back to the United States uh, aboard three other submarines, and uh, I had some fungus that I developed in my fingernails from them being damp all the time, and uh, I got piggybacked, so to speak, into Oakland to the hospital where I was getting treatment for my fingers in the Raton, arrived in San Diego maybe uh, a month or six weeks after that. And uh, Freddie, our cook, he knew that I lived in Pasadena, California, and he called me and said, uh, would I like to bring my mother and father down and tour the boat? And uh, gosh, I, I kind of laughed back at my mother. In those days, women didn't wear slacks. They all wore dresses. And they helped her aboard and told everybody at the hatch to stand back. A lady was coming aboard, and boy, my mother climbed down that stepladder for about 12, 15 feet. Uh, she was going to see where her little boy had spent the war. It was great to see all those guys again. And uh, when uh, we got ready to leave the boat, Freddie had a little package wrapped up for my mother in a newspaper and it was two pounds of butter and they hadn't had butter for over a year because it was all rationed and my mother just thought that was a great great gift Ninety-four-year-old U.S. Navy veteran Roy Christensen speaking with me in September. He served on the USS Raton, a submarine stationed in the Pacific. We spoke at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial. 
A Denver couple found an old trunk in their attic, and it led them on a reverse treasure hunt. They found the owner was a veteran of World War I. Here is CPR's Avery Lill. An old trunk sat in the attic of Ed and Kate Morton's home. Stickers plastered on the side told them that it had been shipped from Sweden to New York, with a stop in Liverpool. Inside were handmade tools, including a hammer and a slide rule, and on the back of one... A clue to its origin. On the pieces of wood that were found was a name called Harry Freeberg. But who was he? And what did he have to do with their 1890s home? Martin's curiosity took him to the internet and to the Denver Public Library. It turned out that this family had moved into the home back in 1910. Martin believes Harry Freeberg immigrated to the United States from Sweden with his family and that he was working as a printmaker when he was drafted to fight in World War I. He had died about a month before the World War I armistice, October 6th in 1918. And I think he was listed as having died of consumption or disease. Freeberg was 25 years old when he passed away in northern France and didn't have any children. But he did have two sisters who lived in the Denver home where the Martins live now. Ed was able to track down one of Freeberg's great-great-nephews, this man. He asked in a message, are you related to John Harry Horst? I'm like, okay, I probably should follow up with this guy because that's my grandfather's name. The Horsts are Freeberg's closest living ancestors. That's John Horst there, and he was a little freaked out by a stranger on the internet asking about his grandpa. But when Martin sent him photos of the chest and the tools, Horst started asking around. He did indeed have a great-uncle Harry, who died young. A few weeks ago, John Horst, who lives in Thornton, visited the Martins, who gave him the trunk and the tools inside. Just to meet him in person was amazing in itself, because I'm like, this guy knows more about our family than I do. And he found it all out on the Internet. Just something that kind of demonstrates, you know, history is not just in a book, it's something that's right here in your own family. Returning the chest was important to Ed Martin as a way of honoring Freeberg's life and legacy. And now he said he's on to researching his own family's story. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. In January, World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi of Thornton died. He fought with one of the most decorated units in American history, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. I met Sakaguchi two years ago, a warning that his story contains some graphic descriptions of war. When I met Sakaguchi, he was wearing a hat that said, Go for Broke. And that was the combat team's motto. What does that mean to you, Go for Broke? It means go all out. Sakaguchi's parents immigrated from Japan. He grew up on a farm near Brighton, north of Denver. And things changed for many Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 by Japan. Shortly after, President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The following February, Roosevelt ordered the relocation of people of Japanese ancestry. They were rumored to be spies, plotting to sabotage the U.S. war effort. So with an executive order, about 120,000 people were forced into internment camps, many of them American citizens. Sakaguchi says his family was lucky to have been living in Colorado. In our community, there wasn't too much prejudice like on the West Coast. Most of our neighbors were German descent and uh, 
the elementary school where we went, there were, oh, I'd say about 15 or 20 of us Japanese-Americans. Colorado's then-governor, Ralph Carr, called the president's order unconstitutional, quoting, an American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them, you must first harm me, a position that cost Carr his political career. Of course, there was an internment camp in Colorado, the Grenada War Relocation Center, also known as Camp Amache. It's not a place Henry Sakaguchi went. He says his family was able to stay on their farm. Then, in 1943, at the age of 22, Sakaguchi joined the U.S. Army. I felt patriotism, and also I wanted to prove my loyalty to America. He was assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a unit made up almost entirely of second-generation Japanese Americans, except that most of the leadership was white. Sakaguchi says that led to some tension, but one commander had this advice. If somebody calls you a Jap or something, she says, don't back down, says, fight for your rights. After basic training in Mississippi, his unit went off to Europe, Italy specifically, in 1944. Sakaguchi was assigned to the field artillery as a radio mechanic. He would fight in both Italy and France, and he was grateful he never had to be in the infantry. Being in the artillery, I didn't know how lucky I was until we got in actual battle. And I saw what the infantry was going through. One day, he spotted a trailer near his command post. It had a canvas covering. I got curious, and I lifted up the canvas, and there was a body of one of our infantrymen. And from the chest up, it was gone. Eventually, Sakaguchi's battalion advanced into Germany. I understand your battalion actually liberated a sub-camp of Dachau in May of 1945. When we got near uh, Dachau, we had stopped for lunch uh, near a large, long shed. And um, just on the other side of the shed, we found about 150 bodies just stacked up like cordwood in their prison striped. Those uniforms that are... Yeah, and you tell they were just skin and bone, you know. In January 1946, the army discharged Sakaguchi. He got married soon after, went to technical school to study radio and TV repair. He did that work for most of his life. He had four children, and with one of them, returned to Europe in 2012. On that trip, Sakaguchi searched for a church in the French village of Bifontaine, where he'd had a harrowing experience in the war. There were steps on on each side of the doorway. As we were about halfway up the steps, a bullet had gone right over our heads and hit the side of the wall right next to us, probably about two, three inches right above our heads. So we ducked down behind the stone wall and <laughs> crawled up to get inside the church the church had two big double doors when we were inside, and there were about maybe 150 people in there. Villagers? East citizens, yeah. Close call? A little bit too close. How often is the war on your mind these days? Every, every once in a while, I think about, about the experience and, and wonder how the 
buddies I knew and I think about them, how they were doing. World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi. He was born in Henderson, Colorado, and died in January in Thornton. He fought with one of the most decorated units in American history. It's a remote, storm-ravaged island in the Pacific, and in 1943, it was the site of a gory but little-known battle involving more than 10,000 American and Japanese soldiers. Beneath the barrage of a battleship's guns, United States forces move in to drive the Japanese from rocky, fog-bound Attu, strategic island in the Aleutian chain. Troops waiting for the zero hour. In that grainy wartime newsreel, waves of American troops land on the island's shores. But for Denver author Marco Masic, the story of Atu comes down to two men. One, a Japanese soldier who'd studied in the United States, then reluctantly joined the Japanese army. And the American who killed him. Omasic's new book is The Storm on Our Shores, and welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. The Japanese soldier is Nobuo Tatsuguchi, known to his friends in the U.S. as Tatsy or Paul. And his life was full of uh, contradictions. Tell us about him before World War II, before he ended up on Atu. He's a Hiroshima native who had converted to Christianity, a Seventh-day Adventist and a pacifist. So as a Christian in Japan, he's already kind of a minority of a minority. He comes to California to go to college and then med school, graduates from Loma Linda University, falls in love with America. His girlfriend comes over from Japan. Uh, He proposes to her at Yosemite, and they take off on one of the first Greyhound bus trips, go from Los Angeles to Niagara Falls. I mean, you can't get more American than that. He returns from his honeymoon, and there's a family crisis. He has to rush back to Japan, and Pearl Harbor happens. And so he's conscripted against his will to fight America, the nation he loves. Let's get to this other soldier, American Dick Laird, who killed Tatsuguchi on the last day of this terrible battle for Atu in May 1943. Laird grew up in Appalachia. He was poor, dropped out of school to work as a coal miner. I want to get to a scene in your book that's actually decades after the war, though, Laird drives up to a house in Southern California. Tell us what happened. Dick Laird had been wrestling with nightmares for four decades from his war service. And he finds this house in California, knocks on the door, and a woman answers. The woman's got five-year-old twins. And Laird gets nervous and just starts babbling about how he loves to raise orchids. He's retired And the woman says, I don't have time for this. It's nice to meet you, but goodbye. And so Dick Laird turns around, goes to his car, and kind of over his shoulder, he says, oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed your father. And he drives off. This is how you open the book. And indeed, he had walked up to the home of Tatsy's daughter. She was very, very young when he was killed on Atu. She was three months old. Her mom was pregnant when Paul Tatsuguchi was shipped out. 
she never really even knew him or her only real knowledge of her father was just as pictures of the wall in the house. And here this man had come out of nowhere and said that he was the person who had killed her father. And so Laura Tatsuguchi Davis was distraught. And it would take years for the story to unfurl from there. Tatsuguchi, as we said, trained as a surgeon in the United States, then is back in Japan, gets conscripted, as you say, against his will. He's a pacifist. How did he feel then about serving in the military, let alone against folks that he had come to love, Americans? He was torn. Uh, He was torn by duty to his country, torn by duty to his family, and especially torn by duty to his faith. The way that he justified it in his mind was that he was a surgeon. He could help through healing rather than waging war. To me, there are two other characters in this book, although they're inanimate. Uh, One is a diary that Tatsuguchi kept through the weeks of fighting on Atu, and a diary which Laird recovered from his body after the final battle. We'll talk more about that. Uh, But the other character really is the island of Atu. You call it miserable and far from civilization. It was part of the Alaska Territory back in the day, but it was so far west that mapmakers drew a curve in the international dateline around it so that Atu and the United States were on the same day. Not just, not the same hour, the same day. You were able to go to Atu. What were your impressions of this place? Well, first that we were so lucky to go there and to be there. Nobody's lived on Atu since 2010. Now, Atu's got some of the worst weather on earth. There are only eight days a year that don't have snow, rain, sleet, or especially fog. I mean, the soldiers who fought in Attu would talk about they couldn't even see the end of their gun because the the fog was so deep. And because Attu is at the confluence of the cold Bering Sea and the warmer currents from the Pacific, it's that swirling mix of cold and warm that just, it it creates this bizarre national phenomenon called Willowaz which are these hurricane force winds that rocket down from the 3,000 foot mountains and hit sea level. And there's no warning. They're spontaneous. When we camped on Atu, we had to bring gear that was like Everest quality tents. I had my mountain hardware Trango. I'm laying there and I thought, wow, somebody's landed a jet on the island. How is this happening? And then whoosh, (laughs) the tent is just, it's leveled. And that's just the force and the sound of the wind. Out of nowhere, these Willowas come. I mean, Atu is a really difficult place to be. It's a really difficult place to live. And I just, I can't imagine fighting a war there. Exactly the notion of fighting a battle in that environment. In a way, your enemy is nature and the other side. You you happened upon this whole story because you had another connection to Atu. Tell me about that. (laughs) Well, my first book was on, of all things, competitive bird watching. And because Atu is so far out there, it's actually closer to mainland Asia than it is to the mainland or North America, birders would go every year during migration with hopes that this notorious bad weather would blow migrating birds off course from Asia to North America. But when I started researching the history of this island, Atu, the Japanese had invaded and conquered part of North America during World War II. You know, the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812, the only ground battle of World War II fought in North America. I didn't know all that stuff. I'm glad you said that, that you didn't know all that stuff. This is not well-known history, this battle. 
No, and part of that is because it's really, in a lot of ways, a shameful chapter in the history of both countries. Japan sent a garrison of 3,000 men to this outpost, this island that nobody had heard of, and then they abandoned them. The U.S. blockaded the island, and so the 3,000 Japanese troops were left to run out of food, run out of ammunition, and it was awful. The government just left them. The U.S. took a large uh, number of soldiers, tens of thousands of men who had been training in the Mojave Desert of California. They were preparing to fight Rommel in North Africa, Mm. and they diverted them to Alaska to fight. They were told that it would take three days to take this island back from the Japanese. They needed three weeks on some of the worst weather on earth, and the casualty rate of this battle was exceeded in the Pacific War only at Iwo Jima. What was the interest in Attu on the American side and on the Japanese side? Well, on the Japanese side, the invasion of Attu makes sense only if you look at a map. If you are in Tokyo, here is an island that could be a a midpoint, a waypoint for launching a forward attack on the west coast of the United States. The problem is when you actually get on the ground, uh, you can't take off and land planes because the fog is so constant and so dense. You can't even really build runways or roads because you walk on the muskeg and it's like walking on a sponge or, or a little trampoline. You go up and down, there's mud that you sink down to your thighs. So the reality is that it's an awful place, not a good place to fight a war. Now, that's on the Japanese side. On the American side, the only reason was that the other guy was there. Mm-hmm. There was no strategic reason to fight a war on Attu, and yet thousands of men lost lives, lost limbs. Today, the only ground battle in World War II fought in North America. It took place in May 1943 on the remote, forbidding island of Attu in the Aleutian chain. And it's where an American-educated Japanese surgeon named Paul Tatsuguchi died. He left behind a diary that provided a first-hand account of his time on Attu and of his love for family. It haunted the GI who killed him for decades. The story is told in the new book, The Storm on Our Shores, from Denver author Marco Masic. I asked him to describe how Tatsuguchi spent his final days as it became clear the Japanese were losing the fight. One of his days was wake up, perform surgery on soldiers who had become embedded with shrapnel, do amputations, and duck bombs. Uh, He did all this in caves, in unlit places, with diminishing supplies. He was getting the full force of one of the most powerful militaries on Earth. Tell me about this suicide pact that Japanese soldiers made and how that plays into the Battle of Attu. Well, the code for Japanese soldiers held that you should never be taken as prisoner. Don't be taken alive. Death before dishonor. In fact, Japanese soldiers, when a few, a handful, were captured by U.S. troops, And they willingly told them everything they knew. They had never been trained to say, here's what you do if you're captured because you weren't supposed to be captured. You were supposed to shoot the enemy. And if the enemy was going to get you, then you kill yourself. I wonder what he thought of that as a physician, a surgeon. He was a devout Christian. And his favorite Bible verse that he brought with him in his family Bible to add to was the verse from Deuteronomy, therefore choose life. And so Paul Tatsuguchi had many patients who wanted to be given the tools to kill themselves because they didn't want to be captured by the U.S. And yet as a doctor, an American trained doctor, you'd take the Hippocratic Oath. What do you do? Do you give them the tools to 
to do that. Did he? It's unclear. It's unclear. It's unclear. Finally, there comes a day when Tatsuguchi and Dick Laird face each other on the battlefield. Describe what you know of that encounter. Well, in the end, a Japanese garrison of 3,000 men is down to as little as 500. And they gather to mount one final bonsai attack. And Dick Laird wakes up that morning and sees above him on a knoll, there is an American mortar that's been captured by a group of Japanese soldiers. And they are turning it back at the Americans and they're going to load a shell. Mm. And Dick Laird sees that this is terrible. And so he goes and he throws a grenade. And he kills or wounds eight Japanese soldiers there. Some are still alive. He goes up again and makes sure that they're no longer alive. When he does that, he looks on the ground and he finds an address book that's full of names with people from California. And he finds a diary. He doesn't know it at the time. It's written in Japanese, but he tucks it in his pocket. He hopes there's strategic information in there. And he passes it along to his superiors later to be translated in, in the rear lines. Ultimately, this diary becomes legendary among American troops. This diary is uh, translated and transcribed and passed around and mimeographed and does the World War II version of going viral. Uh, U.S. troops had been told all throughout their boot camps, all throughout their training, that Japanese soldiers were these heartless, consciousless killers. And yet here's a diary who shows that the enemy is a father like them. He's got two daughters he really misses. He loves his wife. It's really easy to kill an enemy. It's really hard to kill a man. And that diary really changed the impression of many Americans about who they were really up against. It seems that Tatsuguchi knew from the way the fight for the island was going that the Japanese were going to lose. His last entry, written before that final battle, reflects this. Would you read this excerpt? May 29th, battle. Today at 2000, we assembled in front of our headquarters. The field hospital took part too. The last assault is to be carried out. All the patients in the hospital were made to commit suicide. Only 33 years of living and I am to die here. I have no regrets. Banzai to the emperor. I am grateful that I have kept the peace of my soul which Christ bestowed upon me. At 1800, took care of all the patients with grenades. Goodbye, Taeko, my beloved wife, who loved me to the last. Until we meet again, grant you Godspeed. Misako, who had just become three years old, will grow up unhindered. I feel sorry for you, Matsuko, born February of this year, and never will see your father. Well, goodbye, Machan, his brother. Goodbye, Sachan, Teshichan, Michan, nicknames for his sisters. The number participating in this attack is a little over a thousand to take enemy artillery positions. It seems that the enemy will make an all-out attack tomorrow. Now, when he says, I provided grenades to the remaining soldiers, does he mean as armament, or does he mean to kill themselves? It means whatever we think huh. it means. Uh, there, Gosh, I found 10 different translations of the diary. Uh, some diaries include the phrase that uh, he gave the patients grenades, and some do not. Uh, the U.S. used this diary afterward for big propaganda purposes. It's horrific, the notion of a Japanese doctor slaying his own patients. And yet, 
everything that we know, everything that I know about Paul Tatsuguchi would be contrary to that. But what do you do when your commanders order you to do something? My own belief is that Tatsuguchi may have given grenades to patients because they requested them in the same way that someone on death's doorstep may ask for uh, a lethal injection. But it's a great mystery of what actually happened, and it's still argued about considerably today. So the fight for Attu ends. Uh, Dick Laird stays in the Pacific, fights in several other well-known battles. Ultimately, he receives the Silver Star for his actions on Attu, but he cannot shake the memory of what happened or of the diary. What was life like for him after the war? Difficult. He was traumatized by nightmares every night of what he had done. Uh, He was a good soldier. He did what his country asked him, but it left such a deep wound on his psyche. He really was never physically hurt in a big way, but mentally was crushed. Why don't we circle back to where we began? Dick Laird finds Paul Tatsuguchi's daughter, Laura, living in Southern California. So Dick Laird left Laura's house that day, not really knowing what to do. He had wanted to talk to the daughter of the man he killed, and yet he didn't really. But he let it fester. He he drops this bomb, for lack of a better term. He says, I'm the one who killed your father. And uh, Laura didn't talk to Laird for years after that encounter. Uh, But it did prompt her to do a lot of research to learn more about her father, who again, who had died when she was just three months old. Laura had always known how her father had died, but she didn't really know how he had lived. Mm. So she launched a big quest to research Uh, his life. And she eventually got to the point where she felt that she knew enough about her father and she knew enough about what Dick Laird had done that she called to arrange a meeting. How'd that go? They talked and they were polite, but Laura said she could tell that Dick Laird was really troubled. And Laura went home and she thought about it. And she wrote one of the most eloquent letters that I can imagine. Laura's a intensive care nurse. And she told Dick Laird, forgive yourself. Give yourself peace. You did what you had to do. Relieve yourself of this burden. And Laura had strong faith as well. And she saw it as her Christian duty to grant atonement. And when Dick Laird received that letter, he said that was the first night in years, he had slept without nightmares. Mark, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Marco Masic of Denver has written The Storm on Our Shores, One Island, Two Soldiers, and the Forgotten Battle of World War II. We spoke in April. Thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day. Our special was produced by Carl Bielek. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.